How are we doing? 2022. It's hard to even ask if we're ready for it in light of 2021, so I'm not going to. <laughs> um, but we're here and we're in it. And, uh, you know, people ask me this question a lot more these days. They ask me if we're in the end times. And I really don't get into that a lot. Um, partly because the end times actually started with the resurrection and ascension of Jesus Christ. Um, but if you still want to talk about an end time, um, you know, biblically speaking, when there is a church that rises up without blemish, stain, or defect, we can really know that we're in the end times. And, and so in, in light of that, I'm excited to immerse ourselves in the second book of our New Testament, uh, the Gospel of Mark. Uh, in 2022, uh, I simply want one thing, and that's more of Christ. And Mark's Gospel um, is probably the last Gospel that people read of the four Gospels, uh, yet it was the first Gospel written. It's the shortest Gospel. But this thing packs a punch. One of the words that Mark uses over and over again is this word immediately. Uh, and immediately they dropped their nets and followed Jesus. And immediately Jesus went there. Um, it's used throughout Mark's gospel uh, because this gospel has great urgency to present us with Jesus. Urgency for us to know Jesus. Urgency for us to follow Jesus urgency for us to listen to him, to entrust our lives to him, and to bow at the feet of him. So in light of that, let's uh, turn our Bibles to Mark chapter 1. You guys know what to do. We love to stand for the reading of God's word. The beginning of the good news, it's the word gospel, euangelion in Greek. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one, the son of God. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Or a voice of one calling Prepare the way for the Lord in the desert. In the desert, make a straight path for him. So John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. The whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to him. Confessing their sins, they were baptized by him in the Jordan River. John wore clothing made of camel's hair, the leather belt around his waist, he ate locusts and wild honey. And this was his message. After me comes one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am unworthy to stoop down and untie. I baptize you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And at this time, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and he was baptized by John in the Jordan, and just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heavens being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. And at once the spirit sent him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan. And he was with wild animals. Very interesting detail and the angels attended him. You may be seated. So if you were here last week, um, you learned that context and background is important, and I want to give you just a little bit this morning uh, that I think is important uh, for at least today. So as early as 100 years after Christ, church leaders are already crediting this gospel uh, to a person named John Mark. John is his Hebrew name, Mark is his Latin name, which signifies that Mark has some connections with Rome. 
Now, Mark is not one of the 12 disciples of Jesus. I think that's important for us to know. Uh, But he followed Jesus. For instance, when Mark describes the arrest of Jesus, he's the only gospel writer to give this little detail of one of the people who were with Jesus who ran away, his coat got grabbed, and he ran away naked. Uh, Scholars think that's Mark's way of inserting him in his gospel. It also tells us that then Mark was one, one of the people that did follow Jesus, even though he wasn't one of the 12. So then after Jesus ascends to heaven, Mark then becomes a disciple of Paul. We know this from the book of Acts. And uh, there was a little bit of a falling out there uh, because Mark was young. So then Barnabas picked him up and uh, Barnabas uh, became his rabbi. Uh, then you get to the book of First Peter, and then you learn that Mark becomes a devoted follower of Peter. Um, how do we know this? Well, th- this is what First Peter 5 verse 3 says. And before I go any further, do I need to do anything with my mic? I just feel like I'm ringing today. Does anybody, are, am I hurting anyone's ears right now? Okay, you guys are all okay? All right, just making sure. I, I, yours? You're Okay. Okay, (laughs) love this church, man. (laughs) So this is Peter writing, she who is Babylon, uh, chosen together with you, sends you her greetings, and so does my son, Mark. So my son is what a rabbi calls their disciple. They call them sons, Uh, Paul calls Timothy, my true son. So here's a a strong indication that Mark is one of Peter's disciples. And when when Peter says, she who is in Babylon, she is the church, a community of Christians. And Babylon is code word at that time for Rome. So then you have to ask, what are Peter and Mark doing in Rome? Well, Rome has an emperor. His name is Nero. Nero was tutored by the uh, philosopher statesman Seneca to be the greatest emperor of all time to usher in a golden age. Instead, Nero becomes the most vile and vicious emperors of all of them. He was a vulgar sexual deviant More than just indulging in in a lot of the sexual Roman practices like orgy, he regularly practiced rape and tortured his subjects. We know that he killed hundreds of people who were any kind of threat to him. Uh, He also desired to to live like a god. He wanted you to think he was a god. Uh, So he wanted to build this huge Uh, mansion, this palatial mansion, Uh, and to do that, though, he wanted to put it in the heart of Rome, Uh, so he put that part of Rome to fire so he could build this. And that's uh, uh, a reconstruction of of Nero's palace, and if you look to the top left pretty closely in that courtyard, uh, that is a statue of Nero himself, taller than the Statue of Liberty, where he is depicted as Zeus. Uh, of course, after Nero died, they, they wanted to do away with all of this. Um, so the Flavian emperors came around. They drained the lake, or the, that little pool of water, uh, and, in, and, and tore the whole palace down. And then if I can sh- show you the next slide, in its place they built something for the people, which we call the Colosseum today, but that is the Flavian Empire. But it's called the Colosseum because the statue... Uh, the Colossus of Nero stayed there for uh, quite a long time, and you can get a, a sense of who this guy Nero is and the kind of things he's building to try to portray uh, what he is to the world. And the, the Romans just hated him, and Nero knew that, and he, they, they blamed him for the fire, and so Nero realizes that he needs a scapegoat, and his scapegoat are the Christians, The Christians did it, he said. And so in 64 AD, he unleashes this horrific persecution on Christians 
Clement, who's the, the, the leading pastor in Rome at this time, he, he writes he, that the vast multitude of Christians experienced indignities and tortures that are too inhumane to describe. Some of them were literally lit up like torches to light the streets of Rome. Most of them became the halftime entertainment. The Last Prayer, you, you've seen this painting before, depicts uh, these persecutions that, that Nero would do at halftime of the gladiator fights. Out come the Christians and then the animals and people just watch the, the animals devour the Christians. This is the Nero who beheads Paul. This is the Nero who eventually crucifies Peter. This is the emperor who uh, John in Revelation describes as the beast. And this is why Peter and Mark are, are going to Rome. They're going to Rome to encourage the Christians living there during this ordeal. And this gospel is part of that encouragement. Now Mark pens it and gets credit for it, but Peter is the mind behind it. You could just as well call this the gospel of Peter. And one of the things that it highlights is the sufferings of Jesus. We already see this in the text. Uh, Mark's gospel is the only gospel during Jesus' testing where it says, and wild animals were there. Again, he's, he's encouraging the Christians to, to show Jesus uh, in the same state uh, that, that they are in. And now listen to verse 1. In the beginning of the good news, or the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. And if you were here last week, Matt Bell did such an incredible job uh, laying out uh, Luke chapter 3. And he, he gave us the preene inscription, uh, this inscription that declares this beginning of a golden age. That is called gospel. Euangelion, good news, that is brought to the world by the Roman Emperor Augustus, called Son of God, who brings peace and salvation for everyone. And I want you to know that inscriptions like this would have been etched in the most public places throughout the empire as propaganda to promote the genius of the emperor. And words that the Roman Empire commonly attached to the emperor, words like son of God, was one of the primary names. The word the beginning, beginning means an epoch, the dawning of a new age. And their favorite word to attach to the emperor was the word gospel. Because gospel literally means a world-changing event. And this is what Caesar brings to, to the world. Now listen how Mark begins this gospel in the beginning of the good news, the gospel about Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark is attaching all the words that are attached to the Roman emperors to Christ. To say the true gospel is about the true king, God's king, and the kingdom that this king unleashes. And I think by the end of Mark's gospel, you're going to see the stark contrast between these two kings and the kingdoms that they unleash. And hopefully you're asking this question, what king is my life bowed to? What kingdom do I belong to? Now, not only is Mark speaking into the culture of his day, writing to these Christians living right under the nose of, of, of Nero, but those first two words of, of his gospel, the beginning, uh, also connect us to the beginning of the biblical story, because the biblical story begins the same way, in the beginning. And, and you know what that's about. Genesis chapter 1 is about the creation of the world. And creation is just more than a doctrine. Creation is the most amazing thing to have ever happened. And what Genesis 1 wants us to see is 
what, what reality was like before God created and then what reality was like after God created. And the way it's described before creation uh, is, is this clause called tohu vevohu, which essentially means chaos. Before God created, the world is just this churning mess of, of, of nothingness and chaos. But creation is God's word moving into that chaos. It's God's rule being unleashed upon the tohu vevohu. And what comes out of all of that is order and beauty and perfect harmony. A world that is good in every way. Shalom, shalom. And the Bible has a name for the rule of God that breaks into chaos, that brings shalom. It's the kingdom of heaven. The kingdom of heaven is not some place we go to. The kingdom of heaven is something in the Bible that always comes down. It's God's rule, his reign that comes down and breaks into chaos that brings about shalom. It's essentially heaven coming to earth, making the earth heaven. I don't know, uh, I can't believe we didn't tape Neil Martin when he came here. Uh, His teaching that he did on that Monday night in that upper room. I'm sorry, I'm teasing you right now, but we'll have him back. Um, It it was the most amazing teaching I've ever heard, especially on Genesis 1, because he went through the whole Bible. He started with Genesis 1, talking about how the Bible is about the kingdom of heaven. And uh, I'm going to butcher what he did to this. Um, But he showed how how creation, days one to three, uh, begins with the heavens. Uh, Day one. Day two, then, it's the skies. Uh, Day three, then, it's all moving down to the earth. And he said, if you didn't see that the first time of, of, of God's rule, just moving from the heavens to earth... Then you have days four to six, because God shows it all over again. God then fills the heavens, then he fills the skies, and then he fills the earth, ending up with him placing a a, a garden in the middle of it, in which becomes his throne, by which he reigns and rules over the whole world. And you, we, we know how this story goes, most of us. I mean, very early in the story, humanity rejects God. The world became disconnected from its power source. And this was tragic because the whole world went dark and descended back into the tohu vevohu, the chaos, brokenness, sin, leading to death. And look at the state of our world right now. Look at the state of our country. Look at the state of our cities. Look at the state of our schools, our hospitals, the marketplace. Look at the state of our youth. How is God going to recreate, restore, renew a world that he made that is so utterly broken? Look at us. We're broken. I tell you, when you keep getting older and older, you you just feel this this state of aging and and decay that, that... is leading to death. How's God going to do this? And without getting too far ahead of ourselves, verse 15, a man shows up named Jesus, and he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is here. It's here. And thank you for that, because 
I don't know if these are just words on a page to you because I can promise you that the people that heard Jesus saying this, the, the hair stood on the back of their neck. They had goosebumps. I'll tell you how God's going to do this. How he's going to put his world that he loves back together. It's verse 15. The gospel. Now, when I say gospel, I don't, I, I don't know what you think. I don't know what, what comes to your mind, but, but I want to make this really simple. When you hear the word gospel, you need to think, first and foremost, God's rule. The gospel is the good news of God's rule breaking in to renew, reconcile, redeem, raise up, resurrect, restore all things to their original beauty and their goodness. God's rule is not political. It's not that it's not going to impact politic, but it's certainly not going to do it top down. It's going to be this bottom up thing. The kingdom of heaven is, is not an emperor, it's not an empire, it's not a president, it's not politicians. God's rule isn't even social. It's, it, it's not some great leader calling for world peace or bringing a plan of social justice to the world. It affects the social world, but it's not that. It's not even religious. We're going to see in Mark's gospel how, how it frustrates organized religion. God's rule is simply a person. It's this man, Jesus, who shows up and says, the time has come. The kingdom of heaven is near. And Jesus did not just come to this world to hand out hall passes so we could get into heaven someday. This is gospel. A world-changing event is being launched. As Mark says, the beginning, a new age is dawning. Or something as great as the creation of the world is unleashed in this man, Christ. And that change, that transformation, that new creation, it begins with us. It's the kingdom of heaven breaking into a person's life and changing them from the inside out. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to say this. If the gospel right now is not changing you, it probably never saved you. Because when God's rule, we're talking God's rule, when it breaks into a person's life, it changes them forever. As Paul says, if anyone is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. So what we have in these introductory verses is we see the place of Christ's kingdom, we see its preparation, and we see the way into this kingdom. His kingdom breaks forth in the desert. I want us to see that. Your word here is wilderness. Uh, wilderness is in verse 3, it's in 4, it's in 12, it's in 13. It's because this whole text is taking place in a desert. And when you think wilderness, you're probably not thinking that. Uh, but that is the Judean desert. Why is the kingdom of heaven breaking out in the desert? Well, if you've gone to this church long enough, we've learned that for some reason, God just loves the desert. I mean, the desert, first and foremost, is just a dry, barren place. It's a place of thirst. It's a place uh, that can barely sustain life. And because of all that, it is a place where you need God. You desperately need God. And what we've also learned over, over the years is that it's also in the desert, in this barren, desolate place, where God most is. And of course, God is everywhere, but, but the desert is his holy of holies. It's his living room. It's, it's where his raw Shekinah glory dwells. Jacob wrestled with God in the desert. Moses encountered the consuming fire of God in the desert. 
Israel came face to face with this God, heard God's voice, saw the glory of God in the desert. God says to Israel, in, the land, in this land of burning heat, I got to know you. It's in the desert where God entered this covenant of marriage with his people, where they experienced this honeymoon together. David spent years in the desert. Most of the Psalms are birthed out of the desert where David is recounting these encounters with the living God. Elijah went to the desert. Paul went to the desert. Jesus, in our text, spends 40 days in the desert. John the Baptist, in the desert. In fact, I love how Luke chapter 3 puts this. Uh, Luke is more of a historian, so he's giving... Uh, the reader, all the who's who of his day, starting with the emperor and, and the high priest and, and, and all the well-known people of that time. But he culminates it with this clause. He says, but the word of the Lord came to John in the desert. Biblically speaking, the desert is more than a place. It's also a metaphor for life. Some of you are there right now. <laughs> Desert is, is when life comes in the form of a trial or in the form of a test. In, in Deuteronomy 8, God says, I led you, Israel, these 40 years in the desert to humble and to test you. And I've been in my own deserts, and, and w when you're there, you're just like, God, why? why? What are you doing? Why, why does this have to be this way? But I know what deserts do in my life. Uh, God uses those trials to, to let, cause me to let go of things that I love, things that I, that I go to to find my sense of worth or identity, uh, satisfaction. And I'm not going to lie. Some of these trials, they, they, they hurt. Sometimes they can be devastating, but they also bring me to a God that I would not have known to that depth if I had not experienced that desert. Look at Jesus, verse 12 and 13. At once the Spirit sent him into the desert. The word for sent there is drove. Even Jesus had to be driven, driven into the desert. And what happens to him in that desert? He comes face to face with evil itself, the epitome of evil with Satan. Quite a trial, but, but also think about what Jesus experiences in the desert. Look at verse 10. Just as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open, the spirit descending on him like a dove, and a voice came from heaven. You are my son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. Literally, the heavens are, 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 are torn open. And the voice of heaven, the, the, the voice of, of, of the Father, a voice that Jesus has heard throughout all eternity. And it's in the desert where he hears this voice, these words. World, look at him. That's my son. I love him. My soul delights in him. I'm a son. Any son who hears their dad speaking those kind of words into their ears, they can have a whole world against them. They can even be in the presence of Satan himself, and they will still feel secure. And I love this because here is a God who calls himself Father He's modeling what every father should be to their sons and to their daughters. And where does Jesus get these, these profound words? He gets them in the desert. 
and they're going to sustain him as he faces off with Satan himself. They're going to sustain him through the rest of his life and ministry when he's mistreated, when he's hated, when he's rejected, when he's alienated. All of this culminating on the cross. You are my son whom I love and whom my soul delights. Have you heard God say those words to you? We get those words in the desert. Right now, I, I don't even think we can, we can even begin to imagine how much our heavenly Father in heaven, how much he loves us, how much his soul delights in us. But we hear this God in the desert. We find this God in the desert. And unless we have desert in our lives, we're never going to really know him. Our lives are never going to be changed by him. And for some of you right now, I, I, I just want to say, if you're in the desert, he is with you. He is. Matt, our pastor, prayed with Grant's wife this morning. You know what he just said to me? He's like, I can't believe the peace she has. And here's what the Bible promises. The Bible promises that one day he is going to make the desert bloom. He's going to turn our desert into the Garden of Eden. So here comes this guy named John. Mark puts this right at the beginning. Um, John is entering a, a dark scene. Um, the biggest problem for God at this for, for God's people at this time, is not Romans. I mean, trust me, the Romans are a big... But their biggest problem at this time is God's silence. They have gone 400 years without hearing a word from God from a prophet. And probably even worse than, than, than God's silence is God's absence because the prophet Ezekiel declares Ichabod. Ichabod literally means the glory of God has departed. In fact, the way that uh, Ezekiel describes what he saw, because he saw this Ichabod, uh, he describes it in Ezekiel 11. He says, the glory of God departed and it stood on the hill east of the city. That would have been the Mount of Olives. Um, and, and it stood there almost as if to turn around before it completely left to kind of say goodbye. I'm gone. And so for 400 years, the people of God, they still go to the temple. They still worship God. But when they're there, they just know God is not in his house. He's absent. And so Israel at this time is desperately waiting for Elijah to show up. And you ask, why Elijah? Well, the last verses of the Old Testament, which is the last piece of God's word that they have, talk about when Messiah comes, the son of righteousness, when he comes, Elijah's going to come first. Elijah's going to prepare the way. And so look at verse 4. And so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness and then you get to verse 6, and it has all this detail. John wore clothing made of camel's hair with a leather belt around his waist, and he ate locusts and wild honey, and everybody's like, gross. Uh, and, and we're thinking, why is this guy dressed like a wild man? Well, he's not just dressing like a wild man. Uh, in their minds, Elijah, this great prophet of God, is their superman, so this description in verse 6 would be the equivalent of him putting on a Superman outfit, cape and all, and every day looking like Superman. He's here. In fact, it literally reads, appeared. Because Elijah never died. Elijah disappeared 
And they believed that when Elijah come, he would reappear. So Mark doesn't just say that John came. It says John appeared. And God's silence is broken. And we don't have just a prophet, but Superman, Elijah, is here. And again, you have to imagine that when that word got out and people heard it, Elijah's here, Elijah's here. Where? Where is he? He's at the Jordan River, right where our people, our ancestors, when they crossed the Jordan and entered the promised land for the first time, he's there and he's baptizing. Again, goosebumps. And this is why you have uh, verse 5, the whole Judean countryside and all the people of Jerusalem went out to John confessing their sins. They were baptized in the Jordan. Now, what's John's role? Well, John's role is, is what the Old Testament says it's going to be. Isaiah chapter 40, which is quoted here. Uh, in verses 2 and 3, I will send my messenger ahead of you, and he will prepare your way. A voice of one calling, prepare a way for the Lord in the desert. So here's what you had in ancient days. When a king was newly anointed, before that anointing, a road would be prepared for him. A highway. Isaiah 40. Before Isaiah 40, you have Isaiah 35. Isaiah 35 says, The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness rejoice and blossom. It will burst into bloom. They will see the glory of the Lord and the splendor of our God. And, and that's all hope of, of, of God's kingdom coming. And what is that kingdom going to look like? He will open the eyes of the blind, the ears of the deaf will be unstopped, the lame will leap like a deer, the mute tongue shout for joy, and water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. And then listen to what Isaiah 35, and a highway will be there, and it will be called a way of holiness, and it will be for those that walk on that way. And then you get to Isaiah 40. After Isaiah 35 says this highway in the desert, now you have Isaiah 40, which says a voice of one calling in the desert, prepare a way for the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all the people will see it together. Now, what kind of road are we talking about? Don't think guys with hard hats and shovels. Because when a Jew thinks path or road, they are thinking God's word. God's word is the road. It is God's path. It's the path that God's people are called to walk. And here's the deal. When you walk that path and when you Get other people to join you in walking that path. And you walk that path long enough with, a, with enough people, a path will be forged. And that path over more time will become a road, and even more time later, a highway. A highway of holiness made by a holy people. That's the road. And that's why John's message here is repent. Because what does it mean to repent? Well, in Hebrew, it's, it's this word shuvah or teshuvah. Shuvah means simply to turn or maybe even more accurately to return. Because repentance, teshuvah, is when I look at my life, when I look at my heart, when I look at my thoughts, my time, my actions, and I look at all of that in light of the path that God has called me to walk, the way of holiness, it's very easy for me to see how my life has drifted. 
how in many ways I, 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 I'm way off the path. And repentance is, is simply recognizing uh, these things in our heart, in our life, in our thoughts, in our behaviors, and it's turning from them, and it's turning back to the path, the way of holiness that God has called us to walk. Are we on this path? Are you on this path? Are you walking the way of holiness? And see, this is, this is the beautiful thing about repentance. I can be way out here. I can be making a total mess of my life, but I can repent. I can turn back. I can get back on the path. And see, when a Jew repents, they, they, they can't do this by just sitting in their chair. They can't do this by just standing in rows. They always attach an action to what's happening in their heart. They want to walk their talk. So by Jesus' day, repentance was done through washing, through a bath. That's called mikvah. Mikvah is a baptism of repentance. Baptism means to wash. Because think about David, even when David committed uh, those horrible sins of adultery and murder and, and he's convicted and, and, and he cries out to God, he doesn't just say, God, forgive me. He says, God, wash me. Because sin defiles us, it leaves deep, dark stains of shame and guilt. And washing is their hope. It's their hope because of the water that they wash in. The water couldn't just be any water. The water had to be maim kaim. It had to be living water, water that comes to us either via rain or a spring or a river. It's, it, it's living water because this living water represents God. So what they're immersing themselves in as they're repenting is they are immersing themselves in God. God, you are hope. And so by Jesus' time, Jews are taking these spiritual baths every single day. The wealthy had these baths, these mikvahs, literally in their homes. Uh, the rest of the people either had to go to synagogue, uh, there would be a mikvah there, there would be mikvahs in the, in the village where they could find a local river, stream, uh, whatever. Uh, there's hundreds of these baths uh, at the entrance into the temple. You could not go into the house of God without this spiritual bath, this washing, this baptism of, re of repentance. And here's what they did when they entered the water. They'd look at their hands, and they'd say, these hands have sinned, and they'd wash them. And they'd put water on their head to say, I've thought things. They'd put water on their eyes. I've looked at things. They'd put water in their ears. I've listened to things. They'd put water on their mouth. I've said things. They'd put water on their heart because this, where it all happens, I've willed things that I shouldn't have willed. They wash their feet because now some of the sins that I'm involved in have become a path. So here's John. Like Elijah before him, he has the chutzpah to call the entire nation to repentance. And any church that seeks to become the bride of Christ or a nation of priests or a light to the nations, <laughs> repentance will be our message. It's Jesus' message. If my people humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn, shuvah, repent from their wicked ways, God says, then I will hear from heaven and I will heal their land. If you want to know what this church is about, it's that verse. We want revival. But it starts with us. 
because the way the kingdom of heaven breaks into a person's of life is through teshuvah, repentance, a baptism of repentance. I mean, this goes on throughout the whole entire biblical story at every major junction, <laughs> at creation. The spirit is hovering over the watery chaos and out of the watery chaos came order and harmony and beauty. The days of Noah, a world uh, literally is immersed. The whole world does mikvah, baptized. And Noah and his family passed through the waters and once through a dove descends to signify shalom that this evil world is washed anew and made clean. Exodus, God's people, when they're delivered from the chaos of slavery, they pass through the seas. To a Jew, uh, that tunnel of water is the birth canal because when Israel comes through that water, they are born again. And then when Israel re-enters the promised land, they pass through the Jordan River. What they're doing is they're leaving their old life for their new life in God. And Jesus now is coming to these waters. He enters these waters. And when he comes out of these waters, the heavens are ripped open. And the spirit comes down like a dove. What's going on? Think about creation. When that spirit is hovering over the watery chaos, Jesus is now entering the chaos. He is baptized into the tohu vevohu, and as he emerges, the heavens literally break open. And that word for break open is ripped. They're ripped open. Why? Heaven's coming down again. New creation is dawning. God, through Jesus Christ, is recreating the world. And this same word for ripped open is going to be used only one other time in Mark's gospel. It's going to be his true baptism. When he hangs on that cross... And he's immersed in all the chaos and tohu vevohu of our world. It's all just poured out on him. When he bows his head, the text says, Mark lets us know, the entrance into God's living space, his living room, the garden, it is ripped open. Today, let me ask this question. As we start a new year, what would you give for a new start? What would you give for a clean slate? A new beginning? What would you give right now to be set free from fear and worry, from hopelessness? What would you give to be set free from an addiction? What would you give to have the kingdom of heaven literally break into your life and break out of it? If this is going to happen, repent. Come and wash. Leave your old life and trust Jesus for a new one. Let go of doing life your way, where everything orbits around you. The more life is about me, the more I'm a slave and in bondage. It's literally walking the path that leads to hell. But if we want to see heaven, the heavens tear open and heaven come down, we're like the hymn writer said, heaven came down. And glory filled my soul. When at the cross, my Savior made me whole. My sins were washed away, and my night was turned to day. Heaven came down, and glory filled my soul. That happens when God's people repent, when we turn back, when we wash.
can easily say, these hands have done so many things that have failed God. I've thought things that are far away from God. My eyes, my ears. I've said so many things that are so against God. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can understand it? My feet. Some of these things become habits, become the path that I walk. (laughs) We get to repent. We don't have to stay where we are. We don't have to keep being who we are. And here's the thing, when we repent... It's not just turning. It's not just even returning. It's coming home to a father on the porch who's looking at us. My son, my daughter, whom I love and whom my soul delights. If my people are called by my name, they will humble themselves and turn from their wicked ways. Repent. I will hear from heaven, and I will heal their land. God, may there be repentance in this place, in our lives, in our hearts.